The axes of the dorms! The dorms are upon you! It's question time. Welcome back to Quinya Questions in Quarantine with uh, Sam and Raleigh. How are you doing this week, Sam? Doing great, Raleigh. What a chapter we've had. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of my favorites so far. Great. So uh, this week we have of Aula and Yavana, where we dive into some new races. The first ones in Middle Earth. We have the Dwarves and the Ents. All righty. Little eagles for spice as oh, well. Oh, true. Yes, we three races. So first, we want to send our uh, dedications out to one of our favorites from the Two Towers. Sam, can you do that? Absolutely. Raleigh and I thought we would dedicate this episode to a New Zealand actor named Bruce Alprist, who actually passed away at the age of eighty-nine this week that we're recording. Bruce Alpris, while he, he had a number of roles in New Zealand television, was also featured in the Lord of the Rings movies in a very notable cameo moment where he, he shows up on the battlements in Helm's Deep. He's the guy who can't quite hold his bowstring and accidentally kills one of the, the orcs right when they're in the middle of their pump-up jam and really like puts an end to their excitement. And so he gets the first... The first blood of the Battle of Helm's Deep and really kicks off the whole moment. So anyway, thank you, Bruce Alpress. What a great, great moment in film history that we'll uh, remember for quite some time. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. You really changed the whole battle for everyone. Here's to you, Bruce. This episode's dedicated to you. Raleigh, I'll give a real quick recap of last episode, which was chapter one of The Beginning of Days. And so just quickly in this chapter, the world was created, time began, the Valar, our gods, created two mighty lamps to light the world, but then while they were napping, Melkor, our bad boy, came in and kicked him over. So the Valar said, well, forget you, we're going to move out west and build our own place called Valinor. And they built that and they created these two trees, Yavanna, our project manager, gave her greatest creation, which was two trees of Valinor. Time began in the light of those two trees. So Melkor is set up in Middle-earth, the Valar are out west in Valinor, and they kind of have this brief separation. And there we were at the end of chapter one. And now we're in chapter two, as you said, Aule and Yavanna. And Raleigh, let's go to you for the Raleigh recap. What happened in our chapter about these two Valar? Yeah, so... Uh... This chapter had a totally different feel from the first three. For the first time, we get to see a little bit of dialogue between the characters, which is a nice change of pace to the writing style. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, dialogue in these works. But so it's basically split up into two sections. So we have the first section, which is where Aula makes the dwarves in secret. And then our second section is where Yavanna reacts to the dwarves being made in secret. But once Alan makes these dwarves, he angers Iluvatar pretty badly. So was, yeah, I told you that was going to yeah. happen. <laughs> Iluvatar seems a little jealous that Alan went behind his back and made this brand new race. But 
because of that, then Aula kind of thinks that he should be just basically getting rid of all the dwarves, killing them, and then just uh, letting Lubitar start from anew. But as we know from previous chapters, Lubitar is a uh, remorseful god. And so he lets them live, but only if they go back to sleep. So presumably they're going to be sleeping beyond when the children of Iluvatar are waking up. But I guess we'll see in the next few chapters if that's true or not. And finally, Ala gets his last um, wishes with these by scattering the seven dwarves, the seven fathers as they're known, throughout mountains all around Middle-earth. I know from the Lord of the Rings that they're the seven dwarves are key theme with the, the dwarven race. So hopefully that's where the seven comes from and Tolkien's not pulling a fast one on us. <laughs> yes, indeed. I actually never made that connection until right now that you brought it up, Raleigh, like the seven dwarves from the Snow White series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, evidently Tolkien and Disney were hanging around in the trenches in World War One, and they devised these seven dwarves. Yeah, we. I actually don't know if there's a connection there, but certainly uh, these dwarves will be quite different than uh, Sleepy and Doc and... And grumpy. <laughs> um, although they will be quite grumpy and they are sleeping right now. So maybe not so different. But yeah, I like that that owl, like basically he just steals it's like he steals his dad's thunder. Yeah. You know? It's like a Lubitar's like, there's gonna be these children. I've showed it to you. There's gonna be elves, they're gonna be awesome. There's gonna be men, they're gonna be awesome. And then right when he's getting ready to do it, Owl is like, Oh, I already built something. <laughs> Check it out. I made these dwarves. Aren't they cool? And and then Lumitar's like, what the heck, man? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> and so they. it's a lot of this chapter is them working out that frustration and their compromise, as you say, is like, okay, you can have your dwarves. Just let them sleep until my guys show up so that we can, like, get the order right. But we'll come back to the dwarves in a minute. Tell us about this sort of argument that that the husband and wife Valar, Aule, and Yavanna have for most of the chapter. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of section two in my mind of the chapter. So once the dwarves are put to sleep across their seven mountains, Aule goes back to Yavanna and tells her about the situation with the Lubitar. And she's really not happy. Maybe not to the same degree as the Lubitar, but she's more kind of bummed out that she wasn't able to influence the dwarves at all because these dwarves got their creation from Aula. So Aula, if you remember, is our builder. So he's going through the mountains and making sure that the dwarves love mining and the earth. But Yavanna wants to make sure that all her creatures love greenery and love the, the trees, the flora and the fauna. So she's sad that these new creatures from Aula will not care about the, the greenery at all. So then she goes and speaks with Manway, and she convinces Manway to let her create these ints. So they're the big, tall trees that can walk around and speak and move. And so she creates these ints as the shepherds of the forest. So they're the ones looking over all the forests in Middle-earth to make sure that they're safe and, and happy. It's a very sort of motherly instinct. She's like, oh, I've made all these wonderful things, and now you've created these dwarves who aren't going to care about them, and they're just going to cut them down 
to build things with. And so she's like, oh, well, I'll have make, I'll, with permission from our CEO, Manway, make these shepherds of the trees who will walk around and just kind of make sure it's all okay, yeah. right? Protect the yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah. So she asks for permission. I'll ask for forgiveness. Yeah, I never thought about that. There is a bit of a dynamic there. Well, one of them just blazes ahead and does what he wants and then says, oh, I'm sorry, and they come to a compromise, whereas Yovana kind of goes through the correct HR <laughs> yeah. paper, fills out the paperwork, makes sure the funding's available for the shepherds of the trees um, before implementing her plan. And what I love at the end is that she goes back to the end of the chapter. She shows up back to Alex. She says, hey, I made these shepherds of the trees. Your dorms better be pretty careful about chopping down my trees. And then Aule, like, he just doesn't get it. Like, his interests are just about the earth and building and craftsmanship, and he just doesn't care really about the trees. And so he just says, well, they're still going to need wood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just cares about the resource <laughs> aspect of it. That's just like a funny little, almost like a sitcom here of the gods having their little, like, jabs back and forth at each other. But there we have. So as we said, you know, we were talking about Treebeard a little bit in a previous episode, the kind of the main Ent we meet in the Lord of the Rings. And he's always talking about just how old the Ents are. And it turns out he was right. You <laughs> yeah, know? they're like these they're older than the elves. Yes indeed. And like the dwarves are around, but remember all there's only seven dwarves and they're all asleep. So like they don't even really count as being around. Well so I mean so on that point actually, I yeah. I do have a question for you. So this might be a mistake in the movie. But Legolas has a line in one of the movies where he talks about when the elves woke up the trees. So is that just totally wrong? Or is there another instance we'll see here later where the elves actually are waking up more trees? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer off the top of my head. I mean, this would seem to really contradict this, right? This says, in the forest shall walk the shepherds of the trees, which is what Yavanna woke up. There definitely are times when the elves, you know, the elves are really interested in the ants and the trees and they wake them up. There's also a, there's sort of a sub, there's kind of a species that is between trees and ants that you may remember from Lord of the Rings. They're called horns. And these are the, I think Treebeard says they're kind of the ants who have become more tree-ish, that they don't speak but they move in the, they can move and they move, move in these huge gatherings of these walking trees. And it's the horns who show up at Helm's Deep in the end and kind of massacre all of the fleeing orcs that are serving Saruman. Uh, so they're the ones who are in the forests when the orcs run into the forest. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and those are, those are like the trees in particular that the Ents are shepherding. <laughs> are these horns who are like they're more animalistic in a way they can't they're not as intelligent as the ants they just have to be controlled and make sure they're doing the right thing so there could be a role for the elves to play in sort of waking up those trees or helping kind of them gain some some level of intelligence so i think it's possible that the two what legolas said about the the elves teaching the trees to speak and what we're reading here about yavana creating the shepherds of the trees it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah, okay. But I'd also wouldn't put it past Legolas to just make him talking trash. Yeah. <laughs> He's not the wisest of elves. I don't think that's what happened, but maybe. 
Well, let's let's talk about. I mean, this chapter is mostly about dwarves, so let's let's get into the dwarves a little bit here. Which again, I was you would be surprised considering they haven't been mentioned at all up to this point that they pop up before we have the elves and men. So what I like is about this chapter is that we get a better understanding of basically why the dwarves are the way they are. From your perspective, Raleigh, how does that play out here? Why are the dwarves the way they are? Uh, yeah, so there's a there's a point where it says something along the lines of Aula didn't know what beings would be shaped like or would look like. So the dwarves are kind of short. So I thought that was uh, kind of funny. Yeah. To me, the dwarves are always are the short, always mining and underground folk. And knowing their origin story of the guy who built all the mountains just uh, is kind of poetic that he, the God who made all the mountains made the dwarves. And then he put all his traits within this race, all these mining and uh, caring more about the resources rather than the beauty of everything. Yeah, exactly. It's like they, they are reflect a reflection of their creator. Yeah. And it's like, I think the idea is that Aule, like Aule has seen a vision of elves and men, but he hasn't seen one kind of up close. So it's kind of like, well, this is kind of what they look like. <laughs> and so that's his reason for creating them, to, that they don't look exactly the same. I also like this note that, remember, in this time, Melkor has control of Middle-earth or most of the world. So it's like not a nice place to live. So since Aule is creating a creature who he thinks is going to live in this Melkor dominated world, that's what it says. He makes them strong to endure stone, hard, stubborn, fast in friendship and in enmity. And they suffer toil and hunger and hurt of body more heartily than all other speaking peoples. He's like prepping them. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's not going to be pretty out there. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good point. So they definitely are the, the most hardy of folk. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, and it helps explain a little bit to me why, you know, in the movies and books of Lord of the Rings, when the dwarves just are like, they're so like rude and stubborn and like frustrating and just like awkward. It's like they just weren't made for a civilized world in the same <laughs> yeah. way that the elves and men are, right? They're there for when it's like, blood and toil and work and you threat and danger and they have to just deal with it. And so, and that's because, right. That's, that's all Aula knew. He was just trying to make sure they were going to be okay. And so they still, even after thousands of years, haven't completely lost that by the time we get to the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they'll fight till the bitter end. They're they're just like the working class, like we will, we're strong ourselves, we don't need anybody else type of people. Yeah, exactly. Two other quick things about the dwarves. One, it says that Aule teaches them a language. So this language has a name, it's called Kuzdul, which is a very dwarven sounding word. And it is sort of this dwarvish secret language that only sort of Aule and the dwarves know, and the dwarves are going to be fiercely protective of that language. They don't let anybody else speak it. So just keep that in your back pocket. So are these the runes that mean so much to the dwarves? Oh man, those runes are complicated. I think, <laughs> I think that those are actually like elvish runes, the ones you're thinking of that are like around the cover of the Hobbit. 
but I don't, I'm not an authority on that one, but it's more, it's like a spoken language. So in fact, they don't carve the physical language very often because again, it's very, it's private to them. It's almost a religious thing, right? Because it was given to them by their creator. Uh, okay. Okay. I see. We also, okay. this has to go with your language. We see Casa Doom, where uh, the Balrock from the last passage or last chapter that you spoke of with Gandalf died. Yeah, exactly. It says, it's talking about the seven fathers of the dwarves, and it says one of them is named Durin, the most renowned in after ages, father of that kindred most friendly to the elves whose mansions were in Khazad Doom. So, yeah, that's Moria and where Gandalf fights the Balrog. Yeah, so that is a very old place, is one thing we learn that this father, Durin, and his people are going to hang out and sort of his descendants. It turns out there's actually a bunch of Durins. I think the one, the Balrog kills a Durin, and that's how why it becomes Durin's Bane, but I'm pretty sure that's Durin the sixth. So not this first father, but his whatever, grandson, 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 etc. So this might be a complicated question then, but in The Hobbit, they are trying to get to the Lonely Mountain by Durin's day. Is this named after this Durin or one of the five others? I think it's probably this this one. You know, this is the most renowned of the seven fathers who was there way long ago. His life is going to be complicated, right? Because he's going to sleep without aging for a very long time before waking up. So while his name appears here and he technically exists, he, he's not going to really play a part for a while. But I think Durin's day, it, it's this one. And so that name kind of shows like the importance of that name Durin to like all of the dwarves. He's their MVP. He's their <laughs> George Washington or yeah. their uh, Genghis Khan. You know, their Genghis Khan, right? You know, he's like the the most renowned figure in the Dwarven legendarium, probably besides Aule, their creator. The other quick thing I wanted to mention is just this note about so so we have this breakdown where the elves and men are created by Iluvatar. Iluvatar had nothing to do with his dwarves. In fact, he was kind of ticked that they were ever created. And that is part of the reason that there's all this conflict between the dwarves and the elves and men. Right? Iluvatar says, uh, when the time comes, I will awaken the dwarves and they shall be to thee as children, and often strife shall arise between thine and mine, the children of my adoption and the children of my choice. So he's like, okay, I'm going to let these dwarves fly, but like, they're not going to necessarily get along with my elves and men. <laughs> and this goes like all the way back to their creation. Well, that doesn't seem like a good idea, Illuminator, but you do you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's more it's like he's he's not making a decision as much as he's just saying this is what's going to happen because of their different origin. The dwarves are made for a different reason and a different time and by a creator with a much more narrow view than the, the one who's making the elves and men. So I wanted to pick out Raleigh in terms of a, a passage for us to talk about today. Yes. Um, we're trying to make these connections as you've requested to the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit whenever we can. So today I actually have a passage from the two towers and it is from the chapter Helm's Deep in which in the movie we have our mighty Aldor, the Bruce all press starts this battle. So it brings it all full circle on that end. 
But this is a passage where it's in the middle of the battle. The Urukai of Saruman are kind of attacking this castle in the mountain, Helm's Deep. And Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Ithaedon and crew are trying to fight them off. So in the book, Eomir is actually at Helm's Deep. He doesn't ride to the rescue like in the movie. So it says... Uh, for a moment, Eomir and Aragorn halted before the gates. The thunder was rumbling in the distance now. Aragorn says, we did not come too soon, looking at the gates. Their great hinges and iron bars were wrenched and bent. Many of their timbers were cracked. Already a great press of orcs and men were gathering again beyond the stream. Arrows whined and skipped on the stones about them. And Aragorn says, come, we must get back and see what we can do to pile stone and beam across the gate. They turned and ran. At that moment, some dozen orcs that had lain motionless among the slain leaped to their feet and came silently and swiftly behind. Two flung themselves to the ground at Aemir's heels, tripped him, and in a moment they were on top of him. But a small dark figure that none had observed sprang out of the shadows and gave a hoarse shout, Baruch Khazad, Khazad Aymenu! An axe swung and swept back. Two orcs fell headless. The rest fled. I shall not find it easy to repay you, said Eomir. And then Gimli says, There may be many a chance ere the night is over, but I am content. Till now I have hewn naught but wood since I left Moria. And then two, said Gimli, patting his axe. Two, <laughs> said Legolas, I have done better, though now I must grope for spent arrows. Yet I make my tale twenty at the least. <laughs> 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 so they get back to their game. And I know that's a bit of a longer section, but what I like about it is a couple of things. First of all, this thing that Gimli yells when he jumps out of the shadows and beheads these two orcs, Baruch Khazad, Khazad Aymenu, is straight up the only sentence of that Ku's dual language that exists in the Tolkien world. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it means axes of the dwarves, the dwarves are upon you. So it's like the battle cry of the dwarves. But this is, yeah, Khazad Aymenu, the dwarves are upon you is the, that's all we're going to ever find out about that Ku's dual language that they got from Aulay, their founder. Uh, <laughs> there are other names like that are in that language, like Khazad Doom, but this is the only sentence. <laughs> so I like that. I also like that it mentions Gimli chopping wood, because that sort of goes all the way back to this argument that Aulay and Yavanna are having about the dwarves just using trees to cut down for wood. And the third thing I liked is that it goes back to that there's often going to be strife between your children and mine, the elves and the dwarves, where Gimli and Legolas are just, like, sniping at each other in the middle of a battle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this one's more, like, childly fun, but I'm sure we'll see a lot more battles between them. I guess in, in The uh, Hobbit you see more of that strife. Yes, exactly. And we're going to see some really sad conflict between them and the rest of the Silmarillion, as well as some great alliances. The other thing is just like when I think of Gimli in the movies, I think it actually goes off really great. You know how just like happy he is to be fighting <laughs> Helm's Deep? You know, yeah. like he can't see over the balcony, but he's just like, oh, come on, let's do it. And I think that's more of that's what they were built for. You know what I mean? Like Aule has in there, he's in a mountain, he's dug in deep, he's got to go through toil and hardship, and he's got to be loyal to his friends, and he's just got to fight these agents from the evil side. And it's like, Aule is looking down like, see, that's what I built these guys for. 
yeah, so he's not the he was made to be the happy go lucky guy in a in a battle. He's not trying to run away immediately when it starts. Exactly. And it makes you kind of understand what sort of you know, a fearsome group a bunch of dwarves would be if they're actually camped out in a mountain somewhere. As long as you're on their team, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they're they also hold quite a grudge. That's all I had for that section, Raleigh. Is there anything you wanted to say more about the dwarves or about our chapter today? Yeah, well, uh, the chapter itself has honestly, I think, been my favorite so far. The dwarves are very interesting as uh, as people throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And hearing their backstory of how they were kind of accidents is uh, kind of fits their persona. And <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad to have learned about it. But yeah, so I also have a passage as well that I looked up here. Not as glorious as yours with the only line in the entire uh, legendarium, but here, uh, mine is more about the eagles and the ents. So the second part of the section. Awesome. And so this is Manway speaking. Nay, he said, only the trees of Aule will be tall enough. In the mountains, the eagle shall house and hear the voices of those who call upon us. But in the forest shall walk the shepherds of the trees. And so I picked this one because it has two of these races that maybe within the Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit are not the primary races that we're looking at. But as you can see here, they're, they're older than the elves and men. And these are the eagles and the ants. So each of them plays their own role in the uh, Lord of the Rings that we know. But the Ents, I mean, we've talked about being possibly older than the elves, and maybe Legolas was misspeaking, or maybe he wasn't. But I want to focus more on the eagles here. So we have the eagles who show up at the most dramatic times throughout the, the other books, whether in The Hobbit or in The Lord of the Rings, coming to save the day. And so... I want to ask you, do we know more about the eagles? So we know that they live at Manway's mountaintop. We know that they're now the oldest creatures, I guess, in Middle-earth. But do we know what their, uh, their purpose throughout the story is? Or are they going to be background creatures as well, like they are in The Lord of the Rings? Great question. I'm glad you brought that up because I had actually totally forgotten that the eagles show up here and they're actually a big part. So one, we know that Manway, our CEO, is all about the eagles. It kind of goes with his theme of far sight and knowing what's going on at all times. But we also see here that Yavanna, our project manager, had a part to play in their creation. So because Manway says... He's talking to Yavanna and he says, Did not thy thought and mine meet also, so that we took wing together like great birds that soar above the cloud, that also shall come to be by the heat of a Luvatar. And before the children awake, there shall go forth with wings like the wind, the eagles of the lords of the west. So yeah, these eagles are a big deal. They're almost the, you know, if Aule has the dwarves, Manway and Yavanna kind of have come together and created this these eagles who are partially, you know, they're animals, but they also have this sort of spiritual godlike connection because of their creation story there. And they are definitely going to play a part in the Silmarillion. It's not going to be a central part, but they are going to, they're going to come help out when they need to. Yeah. So kind of like saving 
Gandalf from uh, from Saruman or the dwarves and in, in Hobbit and Gandalf from the the wargs. Yeah, it's exactly right. Their their purpose is like they look down from afar and can intervene at key moments. In fact, the the greatest of one of these eagles, whose name is Thorondor, he is going to show up at maybe like the best one on one battle in the whole Silmarillion, which is not too too far from now. He's going to show up at a key climactic moment, and it's cool to think about. It makes more sense. It, I think, in especially in the Lord of the Rings movies, it seems so wacky that these eagles show up. <laughs> yeah, they really come out of nowhere and they just disappear into nowhere. And so this, I think, gives a, a better job. These are maybe not the same eagles, but the, the ones in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit are descendant from these first eagles of the Lords of the West. So we kind sure. of understand their background and that they maybe have a little bit more going for them than just like giant birds that Gandalf is like calling to help with his moth friend. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a theme here is it's like the origin story of the races that we recognize, but obviously, well, I guess not obviously because there's some old people here, but most of the people are descended of who we're talking about. But even that little connection is always helpful. Like knowing that this, the eagles that save Gandalf are descended of this eagle makes it seem more, I don't know, regal, a regal eagle. The regal eagles. That's their sports team also. (laughs) I also like in this little passage, you just read about the eagles living in the mountains and then in the forest to walk the shepherds of the trees. I kind of like that connection because I realized that actually the eagles and ents kind of both serve that function of unforeseen help to our characters in Lord of the Rings. Because the eagles show up and save everybody like at the end in the Battle of the Black Gate, but the ents show up and wreck Isengard at the key moment when nobody else was expecting them except Merry and Pippin knew it was going to happen. So there's a little bit of like these natural forces showing up when everyone else has forgotten about them. Yes. Right. These are the oldest things ever, but it, nobody really pays attention to them anymore. But when they get ticked off, look out. Yeah, so I guess it's, it's the forces from the creation of the earth. You have Yavanna and Manway helping out at the very end in their own little ways. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And obviously some Gimli there for Alan <laughs> yeah. <and> the dwarves. <laughs> no one will ever forget Gimli. Well, Raleigh, before we, anything else you want to say before we do a preview of next episode? Uh, Yeah, I think I'll just reiterate again that this has been my uh, favorite. So hopefully we get um, some dialogue like this in the future, or at least some more of these origin stories of the the races that you don't even anticipate. Well, I hope that uh, streak of good chapters continues. I am a little afraid that we're turning back into proper noun sphere next week. Uh, good, to, good to know there. <laughs> I'll prepare accordingly. All right. So the next chapter is called Of the Coming of the Elves. So that's fun. And the Captivity of Melkor. And so we're going to learn about the elves show up. There's a bunch of different kinds of them. And so that gets confusing, but we're going to find a good way to keep track of them like we did with the Valar and then we're going to have you know everything up till this point it's kind of been teasing the elves showing up so I hope that's going to keep us 
excited while we keep track of the wonderful mythology that continues to unfold its complicatedness to us. The uh, the web is expanding, if you will. The web is expanding, but we're we're keeping on top of it. Only only upward and onward from here. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot, Sam. Awesome. I've, I've learned Happy to quite help, a bit, uh, quite a bit this episode. Take it easy, man. Catch you later.